This morning, we're starting a short three-week series on our vision statement, which was emailed to everyone and is available on the table if you don't have access to email. And then hopefully, on the third Sunday, Lord willing, which would be the 22nd of September, we will have a congregational meeting, as mentioned in the announcements, during the adult Sunday school time, to review and to walk through and take questions on the vision statement. We'll follow that on September 29th with a sermon on spiritual gifts. And after that, Lord willing, we will return to the book of 1 Samuel. Now, the vision statement, which was crafted and approved by the session, and which a good number of you have already seen, I believe. Well, everyone has a hard copy, an email copy at this point. The vision statement has four tiers. They move from very simple, the first tier, to more in-depth, with the fourth tier being the most detailed. So the first tier, which summarizes our vision, is three words. Glorify, nurture, proclaim. Three words. Surely we can all remember these three words. Glorify, nurture, proclaim. And if we get that, we will get the gist of who we are and who we desire to be here at Westminster. That's everything distilled down to three words. However, it is important that we're all filling the words with the same content, thus this sermon series, followed by the congregational meeting. So today, glorify. By which we mean glorifying the triune God, in, in all of life, yes, but the focus here is on our corporate worship as the center of our life together. And worship which follows the pattern that we engage in here, which is an ancient pattern, has been called covenant renewal worship. And if you don't know what that means, please bear with me. Hopefully this sermon will help. Right? This sermon, if, if you've often asked yourself or ever asked yourself, What are we doing here? Why do we do this? Why do we do it in this order? Why are things this way in worship? I'm hoping to provide a sort of accessible, one-stop shopping uh, place for you to go, this sermon, to get those answers. So with that, our text is going to be, the main text is going to be the Hebrews 12 text, though I'm going to call on some of the other supporting texts that were just read. And as you can see in the back of the bulletin, I'm going to make six points. Really an introduction that I'm calling context, and then five other points that follow. All of them start with C, then, you'll notice. And uh, after the context, the next five Cs are really a summary of what we mean by covenant renewal worship. And they flow rather easily once you get the context. And the context is critical here. So the introduction is going to be a little longer than a normal introduction. The context is critical here. Um, So... The five C's, they're call, cleansing, consecration, communion, commissioning. Call, cleansing, consecration, communion, commissioning. Now you have eight words to learn. So one brief word before I begin. Crafting a worship service is an art, not a science. 
No one is saying that scripture dictates the exact order of things. And there's a certain flexibility and charity we should have about how one might implement exactly these these ideas and principles. But we do believe that this overall pattern and this order is a rich and deep and faithful expression of how scripture frames our worship. So with that caveat, art, not science, let's turn to the intro, the context. The context. You can see them there in your bulletin. A, B, C, D, E, and F. Yeah, six, six points under the first point. Um, so the first thing to say about the context is it's an environment that's public and corporate. Right? Notice that our text from Hebrews 12 contrasts Israel assembled at the foot of Mount Sinai just after the Exodus with the New Testament assembly. So whether it's Sinai or whether it's Zion, we have a public corporate worship context. Second thing about the context then. Now this is critical because you may not think this is what's going on. It is a heavenly context. The church lives and the church worships in heaven. You have come, verse 22, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem. It hasn't come to you. You've been lifted up into it. So the Hebrews 12 text makes clear that worship takes place in heaven with myriads of angels in festal, joyful assembly. Worship does not fundamentally take place on earth. Third, worship is, some of you can guess what that big E in the bulletin is going to be the first first letter of. Worship is eschatological, (laughs) meaning it's a foretaste of the end. To be lifted up into the heavenly city is to come to the city that will descend at the end of the age and usher in the fullness of the new creation. We we would know this even without our text. Worship is on the day of Christ's resurrection, which is the beginning or the first fruits of the final resurrection of all the dead. Worship is on the Sabbath day, which is a foretaste of the coming Sabbath rest of the people of God in glory. Worship is thus on the Lord's Day, which is a mini day of the Lord. The Lord's Day is the day of the Lord in advance. To be lifted up then into heaven is to be lifted up into the age to come. So you can see that the worship service is not something we just devise or decide we'd like to do for either entertainment purposes or even educational purposes or even just general praise purposes. This heavenly locale is where the church lives at all times, and it's vividly on display in her public worship. Worship is a sort of concentrated public expression of what is always the case with the church. And if we needed more proof than this, you can look in that Hebrews text, Hebrews 12 text, and consult verses 25 through 27, where there's a warning that says the one who shook the earth at Sinai 
will one more time shake heaven and earth, removing all created things, so that the unshakable kingdom of God alone will remain. So that worship, which does not regularly warn us and confront us with the reality of the end of all things, with the removal of every created thing, is deeply fraudulent worship. Fourth, the context of worship is Catholic and universal. It embraces the whole universal church. You have come, the text says, to the church of the firstborn, to the assembly. This is the assembly of Christians across all time whose names are enrolled in heaven. This is a a fact of monumental importance. It means worship should not be squeezed into some narrow nationalistic mode, some local or provincial mode. Worship is done in heaven with the universal church, with the redeemed of every tribe and every tongue and every nation, including, we are told in the text, the spirits of righteous men and women made perfect. That is, all the saints and martyrs who have died, while they are not yet raised, they are resting in light and glory before the face of God. And they are present in the assembly that worships God. And our use of the ancient Catholic creeds reflects our taking seriously this global communion. It's not just that we're stodgy, right? Or that we wish we have a sort of Aussie and Harriet attachment to the 1950s. Nor is it that we're even culturally conservative. This has nothing to do with any of those things. This transcends all of that. We are in communion with the global church of all time. That's why we worship this way. Fifth, we're called into an environment which is covenantal. So that's E on your outline. Israel's at Sinai, right? And the concern of verses 18 through 21 is God is making a covenant with them. That's what's happening. And in our text, it says in verse 24 that you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And thus the new covenant and its mediation, its communicating, its benefits to us is at the heart of this scene of public worship. This is why we speak of covenant renewal worship. Sixth, worship is sacrificial and priestly. The text says we've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood, the blood of sacrifice, his broken body, which he presents, if you will, he sprinkles the heavenly sanctuary where we come into worship to give us access to God as his priestly people. That blood, the text says, speaks a better word than Abel's blood. Abel, the first martyr. It speaks a better word than Abel's blood because it is not the blood of a mere martyr. It is the blood of the Son of God. Thus, this blood, not Abel's or anyone else's, this blood alone speaks the word of forgiveness and reconciliation and pardon and peace. And it's that blood of that mediator which is why 
We come before God, the judge of all, without terror and without dread. The God who appeared in fire on Sinai. We come into his presence as children. Our God is not some nice new covenant God. We come before the God of Sinai. The one whom verse 29 calls a consuming fire. But this cleansing blood is why we have not, the text says, come to the terror of Sinai but to a festal heavenly assembly. Now, in and through that sacrifice of Jesus, we offer ourselves to God as living sacrifices. You are a priest in the kingdom of God. Worship is sacrificial priestly work offered through the sacrifice of Christ, our high priest. You should think of yourself as a priest. And in this manner, our prayers, our praise, our offerings, our very selves, and all of their weak, defective wandering, are purified in and through Jesus and presented to God, the judge of all, and accepted. That, those six things, that is the context, the holy environment, the cosmic assembly in which worship happens. And when this context drops out of sight, worship is deformed. Tragically so. The modern church has completely lost the consciousness of all six of these things in most cases. And so we get some other stuff for worship. If you go back and you want to read the ancient liturgies of the church, east, west, north, and south, they understand these things. And that's why they are shaped the way they are shaped. So that's the context. Now on to the five C's, the five points of covenant renewal worship. The first point is the call. You'll notice in our bulletin, right, we start with a call to worship. There are preludes, and there's a time of quieting and preparation. The call begins the public worship. It's clear that God calls his people to assemble and worship him publicly. The Psalms are loaded with calls to worship. We saw two of these psalms, Psalm 95 and Psalm 66, in our call to worship this morning. So worship is obligatory. It is owed to God. It is a delight, of course, but it is commanded. Right? Human creatures that are not worshiping the triune God are dehumanizing themselves. It is what human beings are called to do. We're summoned to it. And and in the call, it is God himself, through his servants, who summons us into his presence. Right? That environment that we just sketched, right? Public, heavenly, eschatological, Catholic, covenantal, sacrificial. That environment... That's the environment that God summons us up into with the call to worship. So it's extra credit. If you get those six words, now you have 14 words. You have the first three, then the five, now six more. That's extra credit, though. So that's the environment that God calls you into. And if this is what the call to worship is, God summoning us up to himself into that place, do you know what that means? It means, 
don't be late for church. (laughs) See, God speaks in the whole service, not simply in the sermon. To miss the call, to miss the call is to miss something momentous. People think, oh, well, you know, we'll get there before the sermon. No, you're missing the triune God calling you into that atmosphere. So the second C is cleansing. Having responded to the call, having come into God's presence with praise, we're aware of our weaknesses and our need for mercy. Because we've come to this blood, the blood of the mediator, we who are called into this assembly, we confess our sins then. And we are cleansed by that very blood. We heard the reading from the famous text from 1 John this morning. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. This blood is why ministers are given the authority of the keys, the authority to forgive or retain sins, which was one of the gospel lessons this morning. Right? This is why the minister stands up after the confession of sins and assures you of your pardon. Because Jesus gave that authority to the church in John 20. This mediator and his sacrifice and our need, right, are why we have to hear that our sins are, we are loosed from our sins. Our sins have been forgiven. So there's call and there's cleansing. And then the third point is consecration. We move from the assurance of pardon, which is sealed with the sign of reconciling peace. And then that peace is celebrated with the doxology. We move from that into the ministry of the word. And I call this consecration because the word cuts us. It makes us into living sacrifices to be offered up body and soul to the Lord. We heard this read again this morning from Hebrews 4. The word of God is alive, active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates into the division, the dividing of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the intention of our hearts. The word cuts us up and prepares us to ascend, if you will, like smoke. And from our text, notice that in public worship, God speaks a sovereign and an authoritative word. Verse 25 says, God warns us from heaven. Right? Through the mouths of men, God speaks to us from heaven. So God, who is the judge of all, Jesus, who is the mediator of a new covenant, they address us by the word read and preached, but through the whole sermon, but through the whole service, primarily by the word read and preached, but in all ways the service is sermonic, if you will, it teaches. They speak to you in worship. And it's part of our desire to hear them well with the whole communion of the saints that we have readings shared by hundreds of millions of Christians around the world today. Actually, more than a billion Christians around the world are reading something like the the three lessons that we normally have in the service. I might add here, just as an aside, while the way we worship is a minority report today, it is by far the majority report in the whole history of the church. It's important to remember that. 
So we have these readings from the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Gospel. And, and we follow this church year. Because God speaks to us in Jesus, in Christ. And our year moves from his advent, through his baptism, to his journey to the cross, through his death and resurrection, through his ascension, and his gift of the Spirit at Pentecost, and on to him being acknowledged as universal king. That's the flow of the church year. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, and the church year and the system of readings that we follow Seek to acknowledge that and to honor it and to listen well with the whole communion of saints. So call, cleansing, consecration by the word leads us to communion. That's the fourth C. When you come to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and you are cleansed by Jesus' blood and consecrated by the word, the result is enriched and renewed communion. Renewed communion with God and with the saints. Covenant, renewal, worship. Right? And this is why the communion, when it's celebrated, comes after the word. The supper is a seal or a confirmation or a reaffirmation of the word. We hear it in the gospel lesson. We, We heard it. Jesus actually said... The supper is the new covenant in his blood. The new covenant is preached. Then the new covenant is eaten. And this communion, again, we can never forget this. We never leave this behind. This communion is in heaven. We are offered up through Christ for communion. And so we flesh this out a couple ways in the service. After the proclamation of the word, after the sermon... We pray. You'll notice that, right? Our petitions, our prayers are after the sermon. The reason for that is simple. God talks first, we talk later. God tells us what he wants us to hear through his word, and then we tell God what we would like him to hear from us. Our petitions come after the word. We listen first, we talk second. Then we offer up our tithes. That is a sign of offering our whole selves up to God. Because God lays claim to the totality of your life in the gospel, in the proclamation of the word. And so the church has always placed the offering after the proclamation of the word because the offering is not just an offering of a check. It is that, but it's a sign that you are offering the totality of your life unto God. You are responding to the gospel. And we pray the Sursum Corda, lift up your hearts to remind ourselves again that we have ascended in and with Christ. We pray a prayer of thanksgiving, followed by the Lord's Prayer. Right? The, the supper and the Lord's Prayer, like the whole service, point to the coming kingdom. We are already, verse 28 of Hebrews 12 tells us, verse 28, receiving the unshakable kingdom. And thus we should be thankful people, the text says. Eucharistic means thankful. Thankful people worshiping God acceptably with reverence and awe. So worship then, in light of this text, cannot be breezy and casual. It is simply not possible 
for it to have that ethos. It is marked by reverence and awe. And yet, it is to be festive, full of joy and gratitude. There's a wonderful quote from the 19th century, the great British preacher C.H. Spurgeon, who said that joy with trembling is a sacred compound. And we should mix no other on the altar of God. Isn't that beautiful? Right? Worship is not so much trembling that it's all doom and gloom and fear and grim. There's no grimness. But it's not all on the joy and light and happiness side either. It's joy with trembling. So that's communion. Finally, commissioning. God charges us and speaks a blessing over us. Right? The blood, which speaks a better word than Abel, the blood of the mediator, which has reconciled you to God, the judge of all, the God of consuming fire on Sinai, that blood allows a good word, a gracious word, to be spoken over us. A word from heaven showering us with mercy and blessing. And as such, you are freshly commissioned, you are renewed to go forth into the world as salt and light. You're commissioned. That's what the charge and the benediction do. They commission us. And you know what's interesting? Right after this text in Hebrews 12, if you look at Hebrews 13, there's a list of concrete actions that flow right out of this text. Let love continue. Show hospitality to strangers. Remember those who are in prison. Let marriage be held in honor. So from here, from here, without ever leaving heaven, because the church lives in heaven, we are sent out into the world to summon the nations to this Zion, to this atmosphere. That is why this is the center of our existence. It is our chief joy and delight Because the triune God is our chief joy and delight. Worship is not haphazard. We are called, cleansed, consecrated, offered up in communion, and commissioned. And in this way, we are renewed in the covenant bond that Jesus established with us in his blood and in his broken body. So glory be to God the judge of all, and the gracious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.